Well, it is a joy to come back together and return in our study in the book of Romans. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 5, looking again at verses 12 through 21, and come to this marvelously rich section of Scripture. And while rich, it is also wonderfully complex. And I was thinking about this particular text and what makes it so complex. It's not that the words are hard to understand. The words are very easy to understand. It's the implications of the words that are hard for us. I was thinking about it in terms of marriage. It's like when your spouse comes to you and says, Dear, how do I look in this dress? The answer is easy. The words are understandable. The implications may or may not be so easy to live with, depending on your perspective. And I feel that same way with this particular text. What Paul is saying is clear. What he is saying in this text is understandable, but the implications aren't exactly encouraging and warm and receptive. Paul had simply stopped at the grand theme that Jesus Christ is the greater Messiah, the better Adam, we would rejoice in that. If he simply had said that Adam is insignificant and insufficient, we would agree with that as well. But Paul does more than that. Not only does he demonstrate the corruption that the one man, the first Adam, brought, he demonstrates it thoroughly, driving home his point and leaving all of humanity in Adam under condemnation. Anyone who is outside of Jesus Christ is undeniably under the condemnation of God. Not only because of the actions of their doing, but also of the actions of the first Adam. Adam, who transgressed the law, became guilty and passed on that guilt and corruption to everyone who would come in his line. And again, I would say, Paul had just stopped at verse 12. I might be able to just, you know, fuzzy up the edges a little bit and we can just move on. But he goes into verse 13 and 14 and he just plunges us deeper into the very implications of Adam's corruption and passing on of that corruption. And it leads us to some difficult places. And we start to think about what it is that Adam has given us, the first Adam. As we saw in verse 12, Adam passed on a spiritual death to us, a spiritual death that caused the heart of man to be dead to the things of God, dead to the desires of God, dead to the will of God, dead in our thoughts and affections which led then to the practice of sin. We were also dead physically. We die. This came from Adam. Paul makes this clear in verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. This physical corruption, this death that came in spread, to which then the result was all died. And that phrase there at the end of verse 12, because all sinned, it's a phrase upon which all sinned. The result is that Adam passed to us a corruption that we then practiced sin ourselves. All men sinned. And again, as Adam, as Paul is making this case, he is making this case thoroughly that all those who are found in the first Adam are found under condemnation and death. Initially, spiritual death, ultimately physical death. All those who are in the first Adam will die. Now, as we come to this text, I point out to you that the implications are difficult for us. And this is one of those times as we come to a text where we are learning to come under God's word and to hear his message, even when the message isn't exactly 
encouraging to us. But we'd say, why would Paul, would you spend so much time here drawing out the relationship to the first Adam and the passing of death? It's because we need to understand that principle so that we actually understand the riches of the salvation found in Jesus Christ. Because, as Paul seeks to demonstrate here, the effects and the actions of the one affect the many. And the actions of the first Adam affected all of humanity. And as we're going to see, ultimately by the end of this series, the actions of the one, Jesus Christ, affect the many. Because of the righteousness of Christ, the many will be made righteous. Paul is building this principle, this idea, and as we are taken into this theme, it is a theme that, just be natural, it's difficult for us to wrestle with. I've had many say to me, you know, I just don't accept the church's teaching on depravity. I don't like the doctrine of depravity. And I agree with you, I've been living with depravity all my life, and I don't like it any more than you do. Trying to get rid of, even now, the effects of depravity is a hard work. I see depravity around, and I understand depravity. But just because we don't like it doesn't mean we can ignore it. And Paul doesn't let us ignore it in this particular text. Shubbs forces us to peer into it and to peer deeply. Many don't like the idea that the... That the There is depravity because they think it's unfair that we receive something from Adam that made us depraved. It just doesn't seem to be fair. And it's that fairness question that we want to look at carefully today and the implications of it. After I had finished this series a couple weeks ago and started in verse 12 there, I had multiple people come up to me and say to me, well, what happens to babies who die? Are they corrupted? Or are, are they under the condemnation as well? Or do they escape? And I kept telling them, wait, I'll answer it. Well, this morning is the time to answer that. And I'll answer it at the end. I just want to set up the particular problem. You're going to have to sit through the whole sermon. You can't leave. You may want to leave at some point, but you can't. You're stuck if you want the answer. The effect here is Paul... As he is going to lay out for us, he is going to demonstrate this principle. The actions of the one affect the many. It is a principle of life. It is a principle that you cannot escape from. It is all around you, and it is a principle that is essential to our own salvation. We don't mind it when it's Jesus dying on our behalf and his righteousness coming to us. That principle, we can accept it when it's the grace of God lavished upon us. But the other side of the coin is when Adam sinned, he passed to all of humanity, all of his progeny, he passed corruption and guilt. He passed condemnation. And that is a harder pill to swallow. But I, again, want to point out to you that this is a principle of life. If, for example, you were Russian, and you were living in Russia, and you decided to take a vacation in February, and you're out enjoying some hotel in Paris, enjoying life, and all of a sudden, your nation launched a special military program on a neighboring country, and sanctions came, and your bank account was frozen. You no longer had access to your funds. Your visas were nullified. You would be experiencing this very principle. The actions of the one affect the many. And that is exactly what we're seeing around us, that certain individuals make choices that affect the masses. It's a principle of life. It is normal. I was watching a baseball game this weekend, and the play of the game came down to the final play. 
And a choice of one player affected the outcome for the whole team. And it reminded me of this very principle right here. The actions of the one influence the many. This principle is a principle that is, is operating in our legal system. It's operating in our political system. It's even operating within our games. It is a principle that, like, or, like it or not, the implications affect us all the time. And we want to draw out this principle and see it, understand what Paul's case is making here, and then draw out some applications for us. Paul is, I said, building this case to demonstrate the problem. The problem is that the first Adam brought to all of humanity the spread of sin and death. No one escapes it. That is the universal problem. That's what was demonstrated in verse 12 of Romans 5. We now move to Paul's proof of the problem, verses 13 and 14. The proof of the problem is the reign of sin and death from Adam until Moses. This is Paul's proof here. And he says this. Here's his, what he writes. For until the law... Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Paul presents the problem. Because of Adam, all of humanity is under Sin and death have been corrupted. And to prove it, he goes back to that time period, that period from Adam until Moses. He says specifically, look at that time period. Look at what happened. And he draws out then four things that he wants us to pay attention to. So we have four proofs, sub-proofs here. And because I know this is a harder series, I put it up on a slide for you so you could see it. You see the presence of sin in the world. You see the absence of the law during that period of time. You see the reign of death. And you see Adam as a type. These are the four proofs that Paul draws out here. And again, when we're tempted to think this isn't fair, when we're tempted to think there's no way that this could be in operation, uh, one, to demonstrate, one, it is a principle that is at work all around us, but two, we need it to be true because it is at the very core of the gospel. Now, Paul makes this case as to say to all of us, the problem is real. The problem is real because sin ruled in the world from Adam until Moses. The presence of sin in the world is his first proof. Again, at the beginning of verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. Until law came, when the law came from Moses, and he goes down to verse 14, from Adam until Moses, this particular period of time, he draws our attention to, and he says, in that period of time, sin was reigning. There was sin taking place. This is easy for us to see. You go back and read Genesis, you spot it all over. Yep, there's murder. Yep, that's uh, corrupt. That's, uh, um, prostitution, there's drunkenness in this case, and Noah's family uh, throughout. You, know, you could see sin regularly in the Old Testament. With our perspective, from our, again, eyes informed by the Mosaic law, and from our eyes informed with the teaching of Christ, we can see it. But let me show you from God's vantage points. Turn over to the book of Genesis. God, at least on a couple of, couple of instances, gives a divine assessment of that time. Genesis chapter 6. God saw humanity increasing. This was just before the Noahic flood. There was an assessment on the condition of man. Genesis 6, 5. 
says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, notice, was only evil continually. This is God's divine assessment of the human condition for why he brought judgment. The thoughts and the intentions of the heart were evil continually. He then, of course, called Noah and delivered Noah and his family through the ark. Turn over to chapter 8. You see the conclusion. After the waters came, the judgments came, wiped out the entire world. The waters succeeded. Noah and his family comes out. They offer up sacrifices. And then God says in Genesis 8 and in verse 21, he has this, Then the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is, notice, evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Here it is, again, from the time of Adam until Moses, in that period of time in between, God is assessing the heart and condition of man. It was in a state of evil. Evil from his youth. Continually practicing evil. Sin was in the world. Just back to uh, Romans chapter 5. Paul's point here in Romans 5.13 then, sin was reigning in the world during this time. It was operating. It was going about. It was moving about. It was demonstrated. There was, again, sin in the world before the law. And that sin was operating from the time of Adam until Moses. Where did that sin come from? And the answer is it's come from Adam. The proof that man was corrupted is the proof that they have received from Adam a corruption. And again, this is what we can see plainly when we read through the Old Testament. Death spread from Adam to all of man. That was the point that Paul made in verse 12. Because Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Through that sin, death spread to everyone. As a result, all sinned, or upon which all sinned, because of Adam's transgression, all are sinners. All sins. And the proof, again, is the first, as he's demonstrating, the fact is sin reigned during that time. We don't deny, deny that. You, you look at Genesis chapter 4 and Cain killing his brother Abel. You see the immediate expression of sin even in the family. Sin reigned during that time. And it continued to reign. There's nothing new. That, sin, that same sin that reigns during that, t- that time reigns even today. We have new names for it today, but it's the same old sin. I mean, I'm surprised today at the number of new names we have for polygamy. It's still polygamy. Someone might call it an open relationship or a throuple. It's still polygamy. It's the same sins. And these same sins that ruled from Adam until Moses, same sins operating in humanity. But Paul goes on to the second half of verse 13 there. And he says, here's the second proof that we receive from Adam a corruption There was the absence of the law during this time. Notice, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. The word imputed here is not the word we would expect. We would expect the word legizomai. That is the word used in chapter 4 of Romans uh, that is the word credited, account, imputed. It is the, right, the uh, legal term one is reckoned, uh, is credited as. This word imputed means one is realized. The one is, uh, and this word uh, is the idea of one is not known. It's made known. Sin is not revealed. It is not made known. It is not brought into light when there is no law. That's the idea that Paul is stating here. 
Paul is saying in verse 13 is that even before the giving of the law that revealed sin, sin was ruling in the world. It was reigning about. Before Moses came and Moses gave the law, sin was in the world. The point is the law did not create evil. The law didn't take a bunch of innocent people who were marching around in perfection and all of a sudden came and made a bunch of people corrupted. No, the law revealed what was happening in the heart. If you doubt that, just turn over two more chapters. Romans chapter 7, Paul picks this up and he goes and defends the law because the Jews would have thought that Paul was speaking against the law. And in chapter 7, he brings this up in verses 7 and 8. Notice, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. The temptation would believe that the law caused evil, that the law created it. It's the problem with the law. No, it's not sin. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin wasn't powerful until the law came and revealed sin, and then it dominated me. The point that Paul makes here in Romans 5 is that before the law was given, sin was ruling, it was reigning, it was operating all around. It was in existence, and it was functioning. The law didn't make healthy, righteous people sinful. The law revealed and brought to light the sinful condition, but it was already there. Again, two more proofs for this. Turn back to uh, Romans 2. Paul makes this case earlier in Romans 2, particularly verses 12 through 16. And he speaks in verse 12. He says, For all those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Notice he draws out two groups here. There are those who operated outside of the law, who died outside of the law, and those who lived under the law, and those died. And you think, okay, so those who died outside of the law, they're innocent, right? They got away with it. Verse 13 and 14, Paul continues to build this point in verse 13. It's the hearers of the law who are justified before God. Uh, it's not the hearers, but it's the doers. But then in verse 14, you think, okay, well, maybe somebody got away with it because they lived in this period where the law wasn't given. Ah, not so vast. Verse 14 and 15, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness that their thoughts alternately accuse or else defending them. They are under the law because the law has been written on their hearts. They have a moral law. They know right and wrong because God has made it known within them and that is enough to condemn them. But more than that, and that is sufficient enough, but I want to show you back again a Genesis 4 account. Back in Cain's rebellion and his murderous intent of his brother Abel, I want you to show God's, again, divine prognosis to Cain in Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7. You know, when Cain had again made his offering, his brother made his offering, Abel's offering was received, but Cain's offering was not received. So Cain became bitter, Cain became uh, angry, to which then God comes to Cain when Cain is angry, and God says to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? The point is, why are you angry and depressed? Why are you in the state of filled with depression and anger? 
Verse 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do what's right, won't you be happy? Won't you be thrilled if you're doing what's right? In verse 7, and if you do not do well, now notice, sin is crouching at the door. The word sin there, it's the word sin. Oh, how can sin be in the world? There's no law. And here again, there's God affirming to Cain, sin is right here. It is at the door. It's ready to master you. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Look, the law didn't create sin. The law didn't bring sin into the world. Sin was ruling and reigning in the world before the law came. The law simply revealed it. That's why it's not imputed, credited, revealed. It's not revealed when there is no law. Come back to Romans 5 then. Here's Paul's case. In this period of time, from Adam until Moses, sin was in the world, and it was in the world even before the law came. The answer is, how did it get there? Because of Adam. Because of Adam's transgression, because of Adam's rebellion, because of Adam's place as head of humanity, as Adam's role, he brought corruption into this world. The evidence of that corruption is the presence of sin. The evidence of that corruption is the presence of sin even before the law. We can't blame the law and say, well, the law caused this. No, it was well operating well before the law was given. One more point that Paul makes. The reign of death. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. The reign of death during that time is the demonstration of the corruption of Adam passed to humanity. It's undeniable. The fathers died. We're not fellowshipping with Abraham, not hanging out with Noah, We're not hanging out with the righteous who lived forever because they died. Isaac died. Jacob died. Joseph died. They died. They were under the reign of death during that time. From Adam until Moses, death reigned. The unbelieving skeptic looks at that and says, well, yeah, it's just natural. That's just the... That's just fate. It's just the normal course of life. You're born, you live, you die. It's just the cycle of life that goes on, the normal function of organisms. Scriptures say, no, that is the cause of the consequence of sin. Death is not natural. Death is unnatural. Death is the corruption, the judgment upon the corruption of God's design. If... Adam had obeyed God perfectly, Adam would live forever. If Jesus Christ was not murdered, Jesus Christ would have lived forever. Death isn't necessary. Death is the result of corruption, result of sin. And as Paul builds the case here, death reigned during that time, operating and persisted. No one escaped it. That's why James says in James 1.15, Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Death comes as a consequence of sin. Where there is sin, there is death. And then it's this next phrase that's rather interesting. For... If by the transgression of the one, the many died. Or, or actually, verse 14, sorry. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. You know, there are many ways that people try to avoid the implications of depravity. 
Some have said, Pelagius being the first, said, well, we are born in innocence. The man is born in this innocent state, and in this innocent state, we look around and we see bad examples, and we're just uh, responding to the various bad examples around us, but basically born in innocence. Or, the seminal view is, we were actually in Adam physically, and we cooperated with Adam so that his guilt is our guilt, his corruption is our corruption because we were right there physically with him when he committed his transgression. Well, I think verse 14 here nullifies the seminal view. Why? Because it says again, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. We don't have a corruption because we were either with him or we cooperated and did it like he did. Otherwise, that is nullified. In fact, what Paul is saying in this time is death, sin and death reigned even over those who didn't sin like Adam. That is to say, Cain didn't come along, enter into the garden, find the tree of the forbidden fruit, grab it and eat it himself. That's not why he died. He died because he sinned. So again, another proof that Adam passed corruption. The act of Adam affected us all. The act of Adam corrupted all of us, all of humanity. Even this period of time from Adam to Moses demonstrated the corruption from Adam. Death reigns. And death reigned over those who, who didn't even practice the same sin that Adam practiced. Reigned. Adam cast humanity into this state of corruption, filled with sin before the existence of the law. Death reigns. And then the final principle he draws out here in verse 14 Adam is a type. It says that at the end of verse 14 who, Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam operated as a representative, a type. He operated in a legal relationship, one who is the head over all of humanity. The word type there is the word tupas. It is used many times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 7, 43 and 44. It's translated as image or pattern. Many times it's translated, it's translated as example, as pattern, as model. Romans 6.17 or 1 Corinthians 10.6, for example, uses this word. Titus 2.7. In this, the predominant idea is that Adam is an example or a pattern. He is a type, as Paul says, a type of him who was to come. He is a type of Christ. And this is, again, where Paul draws our attention to this principle of the actions of the one affect the many. Just as the action of Adam brought condemnation or corruption and condemnation to all of humanity, the act of Christ's righteousness brings life to the many. That's what Paul builds on this very principle. Adam brought condemnation. Why? Because he is a type, a representative, a legal representative one who made decisions that then cast everyone in his lineage under the consequences of the choices that he made. And again, this is where within us we tend to think this just does not feel fair. How is it that I am condemned for Adam's choices? How is it that he made this choice and now I have to bear the consequences of it? I'm pretty sure there's a few Russian oligarchs asking the same question right now. How is it the choice of the one affect the many? 
And I would say to you, before you war against that idea and say, it can't be fair, so I can't believe it, just remember the other side of that coin. If Jesus Christ does not live perfect life and die, you don't have life. If this principle of the actions of the one don't affect the many, you undermine the very heart of the gospel. I think this is a very important theology for us to grasp. Because the temptation of our heart is to think, and for man is to think, well, look, I'm a pretty good person. I, um, you know, I help little old ladies across the street. I carry groceries for somebody who's not capable of carrying groceries. I even meet physical needs for people. If they need money, I give them money, and I'm a pretty good person. You might be a great person. But if you're not in Jesus Christ, you are under condemnation because you're in the first Adam. The first Adam brought sin and death, and that death reigns. Can't escape it. You need Jesus Christ. You need the second Adam, as verse 17 says in our text, and sadly we're going to get to it next week, but I'll just give you the look now. Verse 17, where it says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, I love this phrase, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one Jesus Christ. The contrast between the two is the first Adam who brought death, the second Adam who brought life. You might have been absolutely perfect your whole life. You sinned in no way. You're still condemned because you are corrupted and under the guilt of the first Adam. And by the way, you did sin. Just ask your spouse. They know. We need the second Adam. And we see the solution, as I said, next week. Let me deal with a couple of implications in our final moments that we have together. Yeah, this is difficult. It's difficult to wrestle with this. It's difficult to see this doctrine. It's difficult and and seems unfair. And it raises some very difficult questions. But as I said, this principle of the influence or actions of the one affects the many is demonstrated all around us. Baseball games. It's demonstrated uh, in life, it's demonstrated even in our political world around us, but it's also demonstrated in our legal world. In uh, 2007, a group of five men broke into the house of a man by the name of Sean Taylor. Sean Taylor was the free safety for the Washington Redskins. He was supposed to be out on the football field, but he was injured, and so he was at home recovering that night. That night, these youths broke into the house. They had heard that this house was filled with cash and football memorabilia, and they were going to break in, steal it, and then go pawn it off. As they broke into the house, one man, by the name of Eric Rivera, had a gun with him. They broke into the house, and unexpectedly, they came in contact with a six foot two, 225-pound free safety who was defending his house. Scared, fleeing, Eric pulled out his gun and shot Taylor in the leg, hitting a main artery. Taylor was rushed to the hospital, passed out, and a few hours later died. Five men were eventually found. They were arrested. They were taken to court, and they were all charged with the crime of murder, with other various crimes of breaking and entering, etc. But they were all charged with murder. And you say, well, wait a second. Only one had a gun. Only one pulled the trigger. And yet all five of them were together. They all broke in together. They all were charged with the same crime. Now, various degrees, of course. But they were all charged with the same guilt. The guilt of murder. It was illegal guilt. Because of the relationship to the one. That principle is a principle that is operating all around us and we can't escape it. As demonstrated in this particular text, the one Adam, the Adam sinned and brought to all of humanity a legal guilt and a corruption that spread to all. It's a guilt that condemns, it's a guilt that corrupts, 
It is an actual guilt that led us, brought, sent to us spiritual death. And that death is manifested in the sin in our own lives. The actions of the one affect the many. Now, again, we look at all that and say, okay, I can accept all of that and I can see it, but what about babies? Right? Just like uh, I had a few people come up to me after the sermon a couple weeks ago. Well, what about those little babies? What about babies who die? Well, what about those children? Do those children who die, are they under corruption too? Have they received from Adam the same kind of corruption and judgment? Or are, are they experiencing a eternality of condemnation? What happens to children who die? There are some choices. Do they die in innocence? Do they die without a soul? That is, they die and they just kind of go out of existence. They never really had a soul, and so they just disappeared. Is that what happens? Do they die in corruption and thus face condemnation? Do they die in corruption and are they redeemed? What happens to babies when they die? It was my ordination question as a young seminary student. Is original sin enough to condemn you? And having to answer that question with trepidation, I would answer the question like this. Is original sin enough to condemn you? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. The sin of Adam is enough to condemn all of humanity that's in Adam. The only way you're escaping it is if you're not born in Adam, i.e. born from above. Go see how Jesus Christ was conceived. Born in the Spirit of God. All right. Well, that doesn't help the rest of us. What happens to little babies who die? Well, by implication, and let me just tell you, all Paul does here is he tells us this. Because of Adam, there are enough to be condemned. Because of Adam's sin, original sin, there's enough for condemnation. And that's the only question that Paul answers here. So we have to look to the rest of Scripture for us to give an answer. And I, I will give an answer to this. I do want to comfort your hearts to think carefully about the Scriptures. And I do understand this. To give an answer, we are operating into and moving into Deuteronomy 29.29 when it says the secret things belong to our Lord, but the things revealed belong to, our, to us and to our sons forever. There are certain questions the Scriptures have not fully asked. And this is one of them. What happens to a child that dies Paul never asked it here in this text, and then nowhere else would you see the question asked and answered. But there are some principles that I want you to think through as you answer this. Because I understand those who are staunch in their view of depravity are inclined to answer, they're condemned. As if they are, uh, well, it's just what it is. And that is certainly what the scriptures indicate in regards to Adam's sin is enough to condemn for all, for all of eternity. But there are a few other principles I want to remind you of. The first would be this, as you think through it, would be that God is just and impartial in all of his dealings with humanity. 1 Peter 1.17 teaches us that. God is the impartial judge who judges fairly and righteously all of humanity. Second principle, I would add, God is able to save from the womb. My evidence? Look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist says he was filled with the Spirit, and when he entered, his mother entered into the presence of, of Mary, the child wept with, uh, leapt within the womb because of the presence of the Messiah. God is able to save from the womb. The, the emphasis there is that the child was filled with the Spirit. Third principle. David and the righteous 
anticipated seeing their child, his child, in heaven. Second Samuel twelve twenty three says that. When David's son died in the womb, David himself anticipated seeing his son again. He no longer grieved. He said, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. Second Samuel twelve twenty three. There was an anticipation within David's heart that he would see his child. He was comforted by that. Fourthly, as a principle, as you're thinking through this matter, it would be this. Whenever the scriptures speak of judgment, it always speaks of judgment in regards to the actions and deeds that we do. Show you this, turn over to Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, you see this. Verse 5 and 6 particularly. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice, who will render to each person according to his, does it say nature? No. It says to his deeds, to his actions, to his, again, own actions. So when we read, and here's where I would exhort and encourage anyone who's saying, uh, you know, the judgment is going to be upon the child in that way, I would encourage you to find for me in scripture one passage that demonstrates God's judgment is the result of our nature. It's always the result of condemnation of deeds in which we have done. Look at Revelation chapter 20, when the dead are raised and the books are brought out. What does it say in those books? He went to the theology and understood the nature of Adam? No, it says that all of their transgressions, all their deeds are recorded in the books. Revelation 20 describes all of that. One more, and this is a free one I'll give to this hour that I didn't give to the first hour. And it was this. If you looked at Matthew chapter 19 and verse 14, Uh, there you have little children coming to Jesus and the disciples in that context were shooing them away. And Jesus says, no, permit them to come for such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven are for such as these. It demonstrates a particular compassion that Christ had for the little children. And if you want to add on that, look at the book of Jonah. At the end of Jonah, when God withheld his judgment upon Nineveh, and he says, why did you withhold judgment? Because there are those who did not know their left hand from their right hand. There is a particular graciousness and compassion of God demonstrated to the weak and vulnerable that ought to be honored in our theology. And then one more, I'd say... And this is now the sixth principle. There is a particular hope that every believer has of God's redeeming grace on the little ones, on a child who dies in infancy. Maybe if God wanted in his impartiality to judge an infant who died in the context of an unbelieving family, maybe if he wanted to do that, he could and would, certainly has the prerogative and right to do. But I think that there is, for the believer, a particular grace that we have. To show you this, turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. There is a kindness of God that is demonstrated through the believing spouse that affects the rest of the family. And this is what Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14, he was talking about marital conflict here and a believing spouse living with an unbelieving spouse. And if the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to depart, what should the believing spouse do? Paul says, remain with them. Continue to live on. And be faithful. Why? Notice verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. There is an overflow grace that flows from the righteous to the rest of the family. Like these are implications. What happens to children who die? Well, it's enough that the original sin is enough to condemn them, but there is also enough testimony of God's grace and judgment that he would be righteous to save. He is capable to save. 
He can save them from the very womb. He could redeem them and regenerate them from the very womb. He demonstrates that He judges righteously and He judges for transgressions. If He saved every one of those children who died in infancy, I wouldn't be surprised because it is within the very nature and character of God. But if He only saved those who were of the redeemed, I wouldn't be surprised either because he cares particularly for us, his people. In either case, let's draw our attention back to where it ought to be. Let's go back to the first Adam and say this. What Adam are you found in? The first or the second? And I pray it is the second that you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. And next week, we'll come back and we'll look at the solution to this problem of sin and corruption We'll look at it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths and these profoundly rich thoughts. Indeed, they are too marvelous for us. We wish to get out of the way and have you fully on display. We are tempted in our hearts and our own natural assessment to cry foul, to say this is unfair. But yet, in reality, these truths we need. We need the work. We need this principle to be true so that we can be redeemed in Christ. We know the suffering side of that principle. Now we hope to experience the redemptive side of that very same principle. That we would reign in grace and righteousness in and through Christ. And I pray when we are tempted in our hearts to come under texts of Scripture and to war against what is teaching, that our response would be that of humility, that we would seek to learn and to understand and to know you and your will and to trust what it is you revealed. And we understand you haven't answered every one of our questions and help us to be comfortable with that. Help us to be comfortable in our limitations and our own uh, faith of having to trust you and wait on your timing. And part of the joys of heaven will be the interaction with you and the more clarity, more understanding. Father, help us to have the very attitudes we ought to have as your children, studying your scripture, knowing your word, so that all that you have revealed we would be confident to know and then anticipate with great anticipation the revealing of the mysteries which have not been yet known. Till that time, help us fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.